Cliff, doesn't this song just want to make you get up and dance? <laughs> Do I have to dance like that? Hey, everyone. It's another episode of Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff. I'm Ken. <laughs> you folks didn't just witness what I witnessed. And I'm Cliff. We're a couple of high school history teachers who discuss, debate, and deprecate each other's thoughts and ideas about U.S. history and popular culture. In each episode, we aim to create a big-picture snapshot of one year in post-World War II America by using significant historical events to contextualize a handful of films, TV shows, and songs. In this episode, we're focusing on the year 1954, a momentous year for American history and pop culture. Besides getting into a short history of 1954, we'll be featuring the films Rear Window, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and the Cold War monster movie Godzilla. Television was still very new in 1954. However, two very important shows debuted that year, The Tonight Show and Father Knows Best. And finally, we'll be hearing the music of Kitty Kalin, Bill Haley and his Comets, Big Joe Turner, and the single that would transform Elvis Presley into the king of rock and roll. Cliff, let's get right into it. Provide us some historical context for 1954. The most important issue to set up 1954 is the ongoing Cold War, the 47-year ideological conflict between the United States and the USSR. By 54, the Cold War was into its ninth year, and tensions between the states and the Soviet Union were getting increasingly uncomfortable. More importantly, the nuclear arms race was accelerating at a rapid pace with the development of the thermonuclear weapons. Ken, let's step through the biggest stories of 1954. Well, keeping in the theme of thermonuclear bombs, in March of 54, the U.S. detonated the largest thermonuclear weapon ever in U.S. history. It was codenamed Castle Bravo, and the nuclear bomb test took place in the Bikini Atoll, way out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It was estimated, get this, it was estimated to be 1,000 times more powerful than each of the bombs used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The nuclear fallout from Castle Bravo infiltrated hundreds of Pacific Islanders, causing significant health issues for the natives in that area. Castle Bravo provided perfect historical context to the movie Godzilla, which we're going to be talking about in a little bit. In the summer of 54, the United States, regrettably, took over the war in Indochina between the Vietnamese and the French. The U.S. got involved because they feared Vietnam would fall under communist rule and thus spread communism throughout Eastern Asia and then eventually to America itself, what would become known as the domino effect. Uh, the United States would stay in Vietnam in an advisory role for the next 10 years before eventually escalating the conflict into a full-blown war in 1964. Here's a mind-blowing story that I knew nothing about until doing some research for this show. In March of 54, a group of Puerto Rican nationalists promoting the cause of Puerto Rico's independence from U.S. rule burst into the House of Representatives chamber within the United States Capitol building and fired over 30 bullets, striking five congressmen and seriously injuring one. The group would later be convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment. But in the late 70s, their sentences would be commuted and they would eventually return back to Puerto Rico. As the world continues to muddle its way through the COVID pandemic here in 2022, back in 1954, 
the first mass vaccination of children against polio began. Developed by the scientist Jonas Salk, this vaccination campaign basically eradicated the deadly disease of polio by the early 1990s. Polio, as we know, probably the most famous victim uh, of polio was Franklin D. Roosevelt. It always amazes me that into this pandemic that we still have holdouts from the belief of vaccinations and scientific evidence that proves that vaccinations work. I mean, the very idea that we were able to eradicate a deadly disease because of a massive vaccination campaign, and yet future generations will ignore that history and ignore that science is just, it bums me out. But the biggest story of 1954 was a Supreme Court decision that was the legal equivalent of a thermonuclear bomb in American history and culture. On May 17th, 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that U.S. state laws establishing racial segregation in public schools were unconstitutional. The case was Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka. Most importantly, the decision paved the way for racial integration and was the first major victory of the modern civil rights movement. Time to tackle two movies from 1954, Rear Window and Godzilla. I should note the number one box office movie for 1954 was White Christmas, a holiday musical starring Bing Crosby. You ever see that one? Uh, No? Oh, that's a holiday classic. You got to put that on your must-see this coming Christmas. There's probably a reason why I haven't. Nevertheless, it is a charming Christmas classic, but it's definitely not as provocative as the two films we're going to be talking about. Let's start with Rear Window. It was directed by the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock, and it starred Jimmy Stewart and the awesomely beautiful Grace Kelly. The story revolves around a wheelchair-bound news photographer, played by Stewart, who believes he has witnessed a murder in his neighborhood, and it's considered one of Hitchcock's best films. Let's listen to a short clip from the film's original trailer. This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. He knows a lot about them by now. Too much, perhaps. But then the trailer does something I don't think I've ever seen in a movie trailer. Stewart addresses the camera directly and says the following. Those are just a few of my neighbors. First, I watched them just to kill time, but then I couldn't take my eyes off them, just as you won't be able to. It's it's really startling and unsettling for a trailer to do something like this. But it's so in keeping with the general theme of the movie, which is voyeurism. Have you spied on your neighbors to the extent that you are nosy Nelly? <laughs> Fuck. Nosy Nelly? No, I'm not a nosy Nelly. There have been times... In various places where I've lived, where I had to spy on the neighbors. Yeah. Um, for personal reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in Rear Window, it's this idea that the Jimmy Stewart character is clearly stepping over the line of voyeurism to the extent that he is exposing the the evil deeds of one particular neighbor who may or may not have killed his wife. But, you know, he's sort of now becoming an active 
participant in his neighborhood to sort of be the the arbiter of justice in a way where he is sort of like, hey, did this guy commit a crime? And maybe I need to look into this a little bit more deeper and even worse, get my girlfriend involved. Why do we watch television? Why do we watch films? Mm -hmm. We watch because we want to see somebody else's life. Mm -hmm. It's escapism. Yeah. And if someone's having marital problems and your marriage is kind of on the rocks, but not to the extent that your neighbor's is, you kind of feel better about your own life. Rear Window is taking place uh, at a time when McCarthyism is um, maybe reaching its apex, its peak. How does this idea of voyeurism characterize this larger story of McCarthyism that was taking place at that time, Cliff? Well, you got to remember that McCarthyism came out of fear. I would assume there was this was in Hitchcock's mind. I'm not sure what point he necessarily wanted to get across. Yeah, I don't recall any specific language. I don't remember any specific scenes that have even a loose inference to McCarthyism at that time. But as you said, I mean, it's this larger cloud that is hanging over America at that time. We are obligated as history teachers to teach young adults about the concepts of communism, capitalism, democracy, and all the principal things that have driven history forward. But let's never forget that history speaks for itself, or at least the history that's written down. The Cold War had a grip on American society and the world that was hard to shake for decades. Let's just bring this part of the conversation to a close by stating that Rear Window is not only a great film, it's a perfect film to represent 1954. Let's move over to another film released in 1954, the Japanese film Godzilla. It clearly spoke to a larger story influencing the entire world in the 1950s, the Cold War and nuclear weapons. Godzilla is this ginormous, destructive, prehistoric sea monster thing awakened and empowered by nuclear radiation. Let's listen to a short clip from the original trailer of the U.S. release. Godzilla, king of the monsters, alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind. Godzilla, king of the monsters, it's alive. A gigantic beast dotting the earth, crushing all before it in a cyclonic cavalcade of electrifying horror, raging through the streets on a rampage of total destruction. Godzilla, king of the monsters, incredible titan of terror, wiping out a city of six million in a holocaust of flame. Jet flames cannot destroy it. Bombs cannot kill it. All modern weapons fail. Is this the end of our civilization? That question, is this the end of civilization, was a question many people around the world could have been asking in 1954 as a result of a growing paranoia that was happening with the nuclear arms race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union at that time. It's estimated that there were around 3,000 nuclear weapons held by the U.S. and the Soviet Union by the start of 54, and there had been 50 nuclear tests performed by the U.S. and the Soviet Union by the end of that year, 1954. Keep in mind, the Soviet Union would not test their first hydrogen bomb until 1955. So the U.S. kind of had a monopoly, not only in the beginning on the atomic 
weapons, but then they also had about a five-year window where they also had a monopoly on thermonuclear bombs. And right around this time, the Federal Civil Defense Administration in the United States was also promoting various strategies to protect people from a potential nuclear attack. These were the things like those duck and cover drills for young school students and building underground fallout shelters to ride out a nuclear attack. It all seems so silly today. In fact, there have been movies, comedies made about these fallout shelters, but the anxiety of a nuclear attack was always in the air all over the world, but particularly so in Japan. What were your general impressions uh, upon seeing this? So much of this film, Godzilla is not in it. Yeah. Uh, th- there's an, there is a story. I want to talk to you about okay. this story because okay. it's, it's an issue that actually has some parallel in our contemporary world. And that's the idea of science's role in not just creating this monster that's out for the utter destruction of humanity, but what is now science's responsibility to contain this out-of-control monster? Uh, Because in the film Godzilla, science is represented by this scientist in the film who says, we got to study this. We got we to gotta just make sure uh, about what this creature is before we go about sort of just eliminating it. The scientist who creates the weapon that will destroy Godzilla doesn't want to use the weapon mm-hmm. because he's afraid you use it the once. Yeah. You've opened the Pandora's box. Even if he burns, which he did, he burned his notes. You've opened Pandora's box and someone is going to use it again for not good purposes. Which is, in fact, the allegory of nuclear weapons itself is that once man has opened Pandora's box of the atomic age, there is they're They're out there and they're never going away. No, I want to play the closing dialogue of the movie, which blatantly gives away the film's message. And it says, I can't believe Godzilla was the last of its species. If nuclear testing continues, then someday, somewhere in the world, another Godzilla may appear. I couldn't sleep at all last night. All right, time to move over to television, which by 1954 was very different than the television of even 1964. By the start of 1954, less than half, about 48% of American homes, even had a television set. The average cost of a black-and-white television set in 1954 cost about 400 bucks. And just to put that into perspective relative to today's dollars, it's about $4,000 in today's monetary value. The first color TV sets also went on sale in 1954, and they cost upwards of almost $12,000 based on today's money value. Obviously, this was a luxury purchase in 1954, and the folks who could afford that were predominantly white and wealthy. All of the programming in 1954 came from three TV networks, NBC, CBS, and ABC. Variety shows like the ones hosted by Milton Berle or Ed Sullivan were very popular then. Sitcoms were also popular by the start of 1954 with shows like The Honeymooners and I Love Lucy, which was the most popular show that year. 
But in 1954, a show premiered that, believe it or not, is still on the air to this day, The Tonight Show, which is hosted today by Jimmy Fallon. In 1954, the first host was a guy named Steve Allen. We're going to listen to a series of short clips from each of the six Tonight Show hosts, beginning with the first host, Steve Allen. And this clip comes from the premiere episode, which aired September 27th, 1954. In case you're just joining us, this is Tonight. And uh, I can't think of too much to tell you about it, except I want to give you the bad news first. This program is going to go on forever. (laughs) Boy, you think you're tired now. The irony in Steve Allen's monologue, of course, is that the show has gone on forever, 68 years and almost 13,000 shows. Let's move over to the second and third hosts, Jack Parr and Johnny Carson, respectively. In this clip, Jack Parr joined Johnny Carson in a 1986 Tonight Show episode, and they talked about their Tonight Show hosting memories. Why'd you give up the Tonight Show? You were were, were a dynamite hit. Uh, You could have stayed on. You, You could have been sitting here today. I think you said at the time, and I quoted you on this, I said, I think Jack Parr said he got the feeling, or correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure you will, uh, I believe I've said everything that I've had to say in my life twice. Yes. uh, Something close to that. Yes, and then I'm going to say it for the third time. Yes. No, I just, uh, well, you needed the work. (laughs) No, Johnny, I never could do what you do. You, nobody will ever, ever uh, equal what you have done on this show to follow Jack Parr was of course being very gracious but it should be noted that Johnny Carson has often been recognized as one of the most important figures in all of television history he hosted the Tonight Show for 30 years over 8,200 shows virtually every Hollywood celebrity comedian politician musician author and Whoever was anybody was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson from 1962 to 1992. Let's listen to Johnny's final farewell from his last Tonight Show hosting duty on May 22nd, 1992. And so it has come to this. I uh, am one of the lucky people in the world. I found something I always wanted to do, and I have enjoyed every single minute of it. I want to thank... The gentleman who shared this stage with me for 30 years, Mr. Ed McMahon. <laughs> Mr. Doc Severinsen. And you people watching, I can only tell you that it has been an honor and a privilege to come into your homes all these years and entertain you. And I hope when I find something that I want to do and I think you will like and come back that you'll be as gracious inviting me into your home as you have been. I bid you a very heartfelt good night. I mean, when you talk about TV talk shows, he is the standard by which all hosts are measured. When I think of late night talk shows, I grew up watching Johnny Carson. And the people that sat next to Johnny, I mean, that was the big thing, right? If you were invited to come sit next to Johnny, that wasn't an auto invitation. If you did your stick on stage and Johnny waved you over, that was you, the seal. That was of, the nod. That, that was, was the nod or, or, that your career is now made. The host after Johnny was Jay Leno, who had been a frequent guest host for Johnny for years. Let's listen to a short clip from Jay's first monologue as host in May of 1992. Let, let, 
how you all feel in 30 years. <laughs> this, of course, this, of course, is The Tonight Show. The one, uh, the one TV program Dan Quayle hates even more than Murphy Brown. Yeah. Sure you all know about this. Dan Quayle, Dan Quayle very upset with the TV program Murphy Brown. He says the idea of Murphy Brown giving birth as a single parent is damaging to the morals of our youth. Well, I think that's unfair, huh? I mean, I don't see him criticizing Porky Pig and Donald Duck for running around all those years with no pants on, huh? Sure, how about that? There's a couple of pop culture references we need to clarify from that piece. Dan Quayle was the vice president under George Bush Sr. Murphy Brown was a successful TV show from the early 90s featuring Candace Bergen. And of course, Porky Pig and Donald Duck were, well, um, if you don't know them, then you clearly didn't watch enough TV as a kid. Conan O'Brien had the shortest stint uh, as host of The Tonight Show, less than one year. And 140 episodes. And then Jay Leno came back for four more years. Here's a very short clip from O'Brien's last monologue as the host of The Tonight Show. As I, uh, you know, as I set off for exciting new career opportunities, I just want to make one thing clear to everyone listening out there right now. I will do nudity. I will. I will. I will do. Whether you want me to or not. And you don't want that. Now, uh, you know, that this mess is, it's, it's almost behind me, this whole, this whole mess. I just have one last request, and this is for HBO. HBO, when you make the movie about this whole NBC late-night fiasco, I would like to be played by Academy Award-winning actress Tilda Swinton, if that's... The comedy of that shtick was that the picture Conan showed was Tilda Swinton one of Hollywood's most respected actresses and had virtually the same hair color and style as Conan's. And of course, the last Tonight Show host we'll be hearing from is currently the host, and that's Jimmy Fallon. This clip comes from Fallon's inaugural monologue. Of course, I wouldn't be here tonight if it weren't for the previous Tonight Show host. So I want to say thank you to Steve Allen, Jack Parr, Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien, and Jay Leno. Very, very nice. Amazing. And I honestly, I really don't know how I got here. Uh, I, I grew up in upstate New York, a town called Sargates, New York, a beautiful town. I had a great childhood. There's not even that many people from Sargates, so that's impossible. Uh, I had a great childhood, and if you would have told me as a kid that I was going to graduate high school and, and go on to be on Saturday Night Live and then eventually be the host of The Tonight Show, I would have said, I graduated high school? That is so not me. That's so not like me. Um, a show like that was the one place you knew that you could watch a funny monologue, then there would be maybe skits involving the host, but then you got to have conversations with actors, you got to hear music from some band, mm -hmm. maybe get to see a, a, a comedian, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes see some other strange actor too yeah. that you've never seen before. It, it kind of helped to... Uh, inform us about entertainment exactly in a time when we didn't have the internet all right let's talk about another television show from 1954 that not only was successful but also reflected a wider general sentiment about the values of america at that time and the roles of mother and father male and female 
That show was Father Knows Best. It was a sitcom featuring Robert Young and Jane Wyatt as the mother and father to three perfect children in the fictional but perfect town of Springfield, anywhere USA. We're going to listen to a series of clips from the show's very first episode in which Bud, the young teenage son of the family, is going to an upcoming school dance. Pay close attention to how the family members talk to each other, what jokes people laughed at, and how Dad was treated or how he treated others. Father, I've got the most exciting news, Mother, you'll never believe it. One thing I love about this family, everyone's always so calm. What is it? It's about Bud. He's leaving home. Oh, Jim. Well, you know the school dance at the country club next Friday night? Well, Bud is going. Bud's going to a dance? He doesn't even know how to dance. Not only that, he'd have to take a girl. He's taking a girl. Bud? Our Bud? Our bashful, blushing boy, Bud? Oh, no wonder he's been so nervous lately. I'll never forget the last time he was supposed to take a girl to a dance. I don't think any of us will. He made for the basement like a scared gopher. In this next scene... The dad confronts his son and reveals that he and Bud's mother are also going to the same dance at Chaperone's. Bud, old man, Uh oh. I think it's time you and I had a little talk. Dad, I've got a lot on my mind and I'd rather not have a father-son talk right now. But there's something I think you should know. We've been all through this before. I'm talking about the dance, Bud. Dance? What dance? The dance you're going to. You know about it? Yes. Your mother and I are going to be there, too. You're going to be there? Now, there's no reason to be embarrassed about it. And as far as you're taking Marcia's concern... You know about her, too? <laughs> yes, we all feel it. Great jumping jeepers. Unbeknownst to Bud, his dad visits Bud's dance date, Marcia, and teaches her to dance. He then comes back home and convinces Bud to learn to dance from his older sister. Whether you like it or not, you're going to learn to dance. And I'm going to see that you do. You? Dance with my father? <laughs> Betty will teach you. Dance with my sister? Either that or I'll get Marsha over here and have her teach you. You wouldn't. I would. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> the episode, of course, ends at the dance with Marsha being swept off her feet by Bud while Mom and Dad look proudly on. Wonderful dancer in the whole world. I wouldn't say the whole world. You're so easy to follow. That's because you're so easy to lead. Seems to be something slightly old-fashioned about Marsha's style of waltzing. What do you mean, old-fashioned? It's just surprising that she seems to dance the same way Bud does. Well, maybe she read the same book. <laughs> Ken, based on the series of clips taken from the show's first episode... What do you make of Father Knows Best relative to 1954 and the 50s in general? I think Father Knows Best is the television equivalent of a Norman Rockwell painting, that it depicts this perfect American nuclear family during the Cold War that just is a united front of family bonding. The series of clips that we just heard uh, is a perfect example of how the dad is sort of inserting himself into this youthful, angst-ridden process of taking a girl out to the dance. And he goes to visit the parents and he visits the young girl and he's coaching his son. 
And it just, it had a wholesomeness to it that I think was very representative of that Eisenhower era. If you've probably ever sat in a history class, if the American dream ever came up, where yeah. we got to the 1950s and the Eisenhower administration, you would hear about the house, two kids, the car in the garage, yeah. all the appliances that were coming out of there. Of course. The white picket fence, the yeah. dog. Yeah. That is, for so many of us, that is what the 50s yeah. was. Yeah. Cliff, it's time to talk about the music of 1954. If there's any year in the history of popular music that can take claim to being one of the most pivotal years in popular music, it very well may be 1954. And you'll know what I'm talking about when you compare the first two songs that we're featuring. The first one, which we're hearing right now, was the number one single from 1954, Little Things Mean a Lot, by Kitty Callan. Little things mean a lot. Cliff, I'm not joking. This was the number one song in 1954. Kitty Callan was a pop singer whose career spanned from the 30s to the 1960s. I might go so far as to say that this song not only sucks, but it was largely indicative of many popular songs at that time. In fact, I think you might actually hear this song playing in the background on the set of Father Knows Best. Really? I guess I'm suggesting that the tone of the song is part of that wholesomeness, that Norman Rockwell quality that America was so revered for in that Eisenhower era. Your, what are your thoughts on Kitty Callan? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go after Callan. Um, I don't think. I mean, it's not. I'm not gonna listen to it. Yeah. I know where we're going with this. Yeah. This is like so pussy. Yeah. But then, only two months later, this song came out. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. What did you Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his Comets is regarded by some as one of the first rock and roll records. The song actually didn't chart that high in 1954, but after it was included in the 1955 film The Blackboard Jungle, the song rocketed up the charts and became the first rock and roll record to reach number one on the U.S. charts. The song's inclusion in The Blackboard Jungle was the first time rock and roll music would be used in film presaging a lucrative business relationship between rock and roll and film that would grow to great levels in the decades that followed. But in the mid-1950s, this was totally new territory, and the kids ate it up. In fact, in some theaters where the film was shown, both in the U.S. and in Europe, there would be riots and near riots as the kids would resort to dancing in the aisles when the song came on, while others resorted to more serious mischief coming out of theaters at some locations. The song that started this show was also performed by Bill Haley and his Comets in 1954, but it was a cover of this song, Shake, Rattle, and Roll, written and performed by Big Joe Turner. I am a Big Joe Turner fan, but we also need to face the reality of race in the context of popular music at that time. Definitely. In the 30s and 40s, the music industry labeled black music race music, which by the early 1950s had transitioned to the term 
R&B, which stands, of course, for rhythm and blues. And it became the standard, which is still used to this day. This song by Big Joe Turner reached number one on the Billboard R&B charts in 1954. I think we also need to keep in mind something, uh, Cliff, which is going to change by the end of 1954, especially as it pertains to the artist and song that we're going to get to next, that black music was predominantly listened to by black people in the 1950s. That is, until this next guy released this song as his debut single. The song is That's Alright Mama, written and originally recorded by black blues singer Arthur Big Boy Crudup back in 1946. A young Elvis Presley would often listen to the radio late at night under the sheets so as not to let his parents hear what he was doing. I used to do something similar. I wasn't listening to music under those sheets. <laughs> and in the late 1940s, much of what was on Memphis radio was bluegrass country, traditional Kitty Callan type pop, and way down the dial, black blues music. The story goes that when Elvis Presley was recording his first session at Sun Studios in Memphis in the summer of 1954, Elvis was messing around with a fast-paced version of Crudup's song during a break. Sam Phillips, the owner and producer of the now-famous Sun Studios, started rolling the tape, went through a couple of takes before arriving on the particular version we're hearing. Phillips had found what he had been looking for, a white singer who could sing like a black man and who had what he called a Negro feel. Well, of course, Negro being the de facto word used for black people at that time. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the birth of Elvis Presley as the king of rock and roll and... More importantly, it was the beginning of a young, rebellious, and white acceptance of black music in America. Cliff, let's have a conversation about the term rock and rock roll. And roll. Okay. Yeah. Because I think we uh, have thus far acknowledged that 1954 is a pivotal year in music, in that we begin to see an acceptance, a greater acceptance of black music. We begin to also begin to see the acceleration of rock and roll as a genre unto itself. Merriam-Webster defines rock and roll as the following, quote, popular music usually played on electronically amplified instruments and characterized by a persistent, heavily accented beat, repetition of simple phrases, and often country, folk, and blues elements. Do you accept that definition as a fundamental, universally understood definition of rock and roll? I would say more or less. Let me throw this one back at you. Okay. Um, this is from Masterclass. You know, the Masterclass yes. does all that. Oh. Um, and their answer to what is rock and roll music. Rock and roll is a popular music genre that combines elements of rhythm and blues, jazz, and country music with the addition of electric instruments. Okay, so similar. Originally associated with youth revolt and transgression, the genre is known for energetic performances, catchy melodies, and often insightful lyrics. I like that definition better because there is one word that stood out for me. Youth is the key word. Because what happens after Elvis Presley releases That's Alright Mama and starts shaking his hips for you know, the white girls of the U.S., it accelerates 
this youth movement of, yeah, man, that's cool music. Mm-hmm. And it is from that point where rock and roll is the adopted musical genre of for, young people. Of young white people. Yeah. I think for me, for it to be to label it as rock and roll, I got to have two impulses. I want to bang my head. <laughs> rock, right? And that, is banging your head a matter of volume? Well, it can be, but I think it's it's also beat. It's it's emphasis on you know a hard chord or something. I don't know. Yeah, it could be volume. Okay, I'm not real sure. All right, keep um, going. And so I need to want to bang my head, you know, or pump my fist to this yeah. thing. But I also want to dance. The earliest derivation, like if you go back, when was the term rock and roll first used? Didn't, it was it was going in the 20s and 30s as with sex the, wasn't it, it what black people referred to having sex as rock and roll right it then sort of extended uh, within the black community to beyond sex to dancing that if you hey let's go rock and roll let's it, go it, dance it's it, it transferred from sexual relations to dancing right which we also need to acknowledge is with elvis presley's shaking hips is there is a sexual element to rock and roll Cliff, we mentioned earlier in the show how Brown versus Board of Ed was the watershed moment, at least in a legal government way, when America had to accept the fact that whites and blacks could no longer be separated in the way they lived their daily lives. I take the argument that Elvis Presley accelerated that transition in a way that even a Supreme Court decision could not do. You know, our laws can only reach so far. Um, and we're pretty big on privacy and what goes on in your home mm-hmm. is is your business. The Supreme Court couldn't go and in, go inside schools, but they couldn't go inside homes. Mm-hmm. Elvis Presley did. It's time to reveal our personal favorite entertainment release from 1954. And I'm going to blow your mind here. I actually picked a book for 1954. You know those things that have you know they're made of paper and there's some occasional I, illustration. I know, I know those things. My <laughs> question, Mister, I read a book or two a year. Is do you know this thing called the book? You're telling I, me you chose a book as your personal favorite I did. release. And of here's the book. Okay, the book I picked is The Lord of the Flies by William Golding, which was published that year. Um, it's pretty standard reading for middle schoolers, and yeah. that's when I read it in, in eighth middle grade. school. Okay, I, I, I read right. it in eighth grade. Okay. But here's why it stands out still as one of the more pivotal moments in my youth. It was really the first time that I had an English teacher that was able to sort of make me analyze literature in a way that was very deeply meaningful. One of the reasons why I picked that book is that it has a lot to do with what we are doing right now, which is the idea of singling out a particular form of media and sort of breaking it down and, and analyzing it. And for that, I am eternally indebted to the Lord of the Flies and William Golding. Wouldn't you know it? I also picked a book, and not only copycat, I, huh? Fuck you. <laughs> I not only picked a book. I picked a book with the word Lord in the title as well. All right, because this is my all-time I know favorite is. book. I know where you're going with this. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I think what I am drawn most to it is that. He created an entire world. Yeah. He created languages for those worlds. And when you read The Lord of the Rings, there is so much out there. There's so much backstory that you're just not even aware of. And so he's opening up. He's giving you a picture 
a little picture, a little glimpse into this magical place in which it's all in his head. I have a poster for the Lord of the Rings from the cartoon movie back in the late 70s mm-hmm. that hung in my office for years when I used to have an office at a university. And the, what would you call it, the wordage mm-hmm. uh, is, one man cast a lingering spell of awe and wonder, of magical innocence overcoming evil, of simple courage conquering fear. He gave us the legend that will live forever in our minds. J.R.R. Tolkien triumphed with the perception that a single dream is more powerful than a thousand realities. Folks, well, that does it for this show. Um, If anyone's interested to learn more about the stuff we featured in this episode, the history, the films, the music, the TV shows discussed, please visit our website, kenandcliff.com. I love that. You'll find links to additional reading, Spotify song lists, letterboxed movie lists, and an opportunity to contact us about what you like and you don't like about the show. Please share Year View Mirror with Ken and Cliff with your friends, family, foes, pets. You can always find us on KenandCliff.com. Drop us a message about what you like, what you don't like. And join us next time on Year View Mirror with Ken and Cliff. Come on. Baby, please come home.